Today's episode is called The Hidden Cost of Asking for Help. We'll explain what the hell that means shortly. First of all, welcome back, Gareth Edwards. Hello. I feel like I should probably mention my name, which I often forget. I'm Graham Panther. Hi, Graham. Hi, how you going? Now, topic today, hidden cost of asking for help. I actually want to just kind of start with a bit of a spiel, which is becoming more of our usual convention anyway, so why not? Mm. This comes from, I've been talking about this stuff for a while, but it, I, I spent ages working on my witness statement to the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health recently, and I realized like so much of what I've told them I want to talk about on this show. Mm. But I've picked one part, which is uh, this section called The Hidden Cost of Asking for Help. So I'm just going to jump into that. And then, Gareth, I'm very curious to hear what you make of it all. So (sighs) there are like the really well-known, often talked about costs of asking for help for your mental health, right? There's all the money you spend just trying to find something, anything that'll make you feel better. Mm Mm-hmm. Then there's the time cost, the hours and hours of, of searching and ringing around this labyrinthine mental health system. But what we don't talk about very often is the hidden cost of asking for help. This is the cost to your sense of self, which is to me a devastating and sometimes lifelong cost that most mental health practitioners and policymakers don't even seem to notice. So what do I mean by that? Getting anywhere in this health system when you're having a hard time means taking on the language of the system. Mm. So in order to get help, you need to become someone who needs help. Mm. That makes sense? Yeah. So the cost to your identity, right, Um, in taking on this, this, this whole way of seeing yourself. And after a while, certainly this was my experience, It's hard to hear yourself think anymore or to think of yourself as more than just a set of symptoms. Now, I had a particularly extreme example of this when at 23 years of age, my psychiatrist told me I had brain damage, probably irreversible. Um, That was despite having two brain scans that showed no anomalies. But his way of seeing the world, his training, his model he'd been given was if you have a whole lot of big scary feelings going on, there's something wrong with your brain. So that was the frame he was given and that was the frame he gave to me. Imagine how that felt as a, as a young man trying to make his way in the world to be told there was something desperately wrong with me. That's the hidden cost of asking for help. But it can be much more subtle. So uh, I want to just mention here one conversation I had with a Big Feels Club uh, member a year or so ago, uh, a lady who describes herself as, as having probably always been depressed, is how she said it to me, um, since she was a kid, but she never felt like that label depression applied to her because, you know, first of all, it just felt like a very heavy word and she said to me, you know, I've, everything's fine in my life. What have I got to be depressed about? Mm. Uh, and so she was someone who for many, many years just never told anyone about it. She did go and see her GP and got some antidepressants, which sort of helped, sort of didn't, but never told anyone else, never tried any of the other options out there for help until about a year before I talked to her 
everything changed. She was suddenly seeing a therapist once a week. She told her sister about her experiences and, and found out they both had the same experience. She told her mum and got a really nourishing response. And I asked her what changed, why, why the sudden you know shift in your approach to all this. And she said, it was reading a Big Feels Club newsletter about something I call the long, slow, twisting shame spiral. <laughs> which is when you're just stuck in that shame cave for months on end, convinced that you're the worst human being alive for no obvious reason, which is always a fun thing. Um, so I wrote this piece about that, you know, just kind of explaining my experience. And to her, reading that, that one little article was enough to go, oh, I can't identify with depression. That's too heavy. That's there's too mm. much baggage there. I can't tell my family I'm depressed because I'll be like, well, what that, Why? But I can tell them I'm in a long, slow, twisting shame spiral. So that's where it started for her. That's where all that change happened. And I guess, again, that's like that's the kind of the more subtle version of this hidden cost of asking for help. All the ads tell us, you know, just reach out, just ask for help. But there's no fucking just about it. Because mm. what it means is <laughs> you go to that GP, you go to that therapist or whatever, and so often you get given this new identity and that new identity is basically your fuck up, to put it mildly. That's a lot of it. That's a heavy trip to put on people. Even, even the, you know, the, the, the fun little phrases we have in Australia, like, it's just like a broken leg in your brain. It's like, yeah, but hold on. You're telling me my brain's broken, you dickhead. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is this, this hidden cost of asking for help the cost to your sense of self, the cost to your identity, even when you get the help. And we don't talk about it enough. So I'm curious, what do you think of all of that, Gary? <laughs> well, first, it's a real pleasure to hear you swear so much. <laughs> Normally a little sign that, you know, something's got your goat. You know, on a particularly We're sweary lockdown. <laughs> Second lockdown, it's all coming out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what it tells me is we've, we've kind of stumbled on on something that's really not just annoyed you, but, you know, really kind of activated your passion for, for something different. And um, the, the first thing I've got is a question. Like, yeah. it's a devil's advocate thing. Like, what is it costing you? Tell me more about that. What's the cost? <laughs> like, money out of my wallet and time in my day, that's tangible things. I can tell you that they cost me. What do you mean yeah. when you say it costs part of your identity? So we talked about this a little in the last episode around meds um, when I was talking about how, particularly in my early 20s, it's such a tender time and it's, it's, it's so often the time where this shit really hits the fan for a lot of us. Yeah. Early 20s. Because it, it's, that, it's, that, it's the quarter-life crisis thing, right? There's so much changing. But it's also the time when you're really trying to figure out who the hell you are. Yeah. But you, you're in your early 20s, you're like, who am I? And I just, I just need to jet. I think there's also an element of like, oh, wait a minute. This is bullshit. No, wait a minute. I was a child and you made all these promises about adulthood and it's not <laughs> panning out everybody. Yeah. No, no, no. Can we go back? Can we roll back to version one? This is shit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, so, so what am I saying? It's a perfectly sensible point at which to have a breakdown. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But the thing is, you're also then very susceptible to new theories on who you are. Yeah. And if the theory you're given by the people supposedly trying to help you is, oh, yeah, there's something wrong with you. You're not supposed to be feeling this way. 
that's that is it's devastating. It is. I want. I, I, I want to know what it costs. Like I can understand someone's just giving you a new way of seeing yourself. That's that's unpleasant or different or <laughs> has challenges. I want to know what it takes away. Because I think, I think there's it, some gold there. Yeah, I think what it almost took away from me is 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 a is the motivation to keep trying. Right. Trying to do what? Try and integrate. Yeah. The stuff. Here we try, go. <laughs> try and take the stuff that that society tells me is wrong, like feeling sad a lot of the time. Mm. I'll give you the example. So here's my yearly example of this cost, because I think I think your question's bang on. I go and get my GP mental health mm. plan every year. So in Australia, you can get a subsidy on up to 10 sessions of therapy a year, which is great. Um, but you have to first go see a GP and get the dreaded GP mental health plan, which is basically, uh, you've probably come across this, whatever country you're in, that, that fucking awful 10-question depression assessment survey, the DAS. Almost without fail, I do that 10-question that assessment and it comes out as severely depressed. There's two ways to look at that. One is um, one of these treatment-resistant types. <laughs> or two, there is a way of being in the world that to a more kind of medical norm, normalizing lens looks like a major problem. Mm. And yet, I feel like I'm also doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you have spoken about that test and certain questions just before we move on, treatment resistant, I feel like that's got a place in our mad pride consumer movement. Like, Go on. Well, and and, and, and t tell us that, but also tell for those who don't know what mad pride is, because I, I imagine there's some out there who... Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> What's mad pride? <laughs> uh, it's like gay pride, but less sexy. That's possibly one way of looking <laughs> at it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a social movement, like all the pride movements, whether that's... Uh, ethnicity-based, gender-based, sexual orientation-based. It's basically saying it's not us, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> like, society, do better, please, because we're not at fault. And uh, and we celebrate in the same way the arts, music, comedy, writing. There's, there's, there's versions of it in academia called Mad Studies. That's a great rabbit hole to go down if you've, you know, I'm guessing a lot of people like, you know, alternative research. You might be listening to this, Mad Studies. There's some beautiful stuff down there. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're just very early. We're just not stomping down the streets. There has been a bit of stomping down the streets, particularly in Canada. So so that's Mad Pride uh, in a very brief nutshell. And um, I guess the treatment resistance thing, I feel if we made it French, it would be like like part of the French Revolution. Resistance de la treatment or something. You know, are you saying viva la, viva la resistance? Is that yeah, yeah. So there's there's not the, we're not universally anti-treatment in the Mad Pride movement, but uh, we're resistant. Like we want to know why. If we're going to be treated, then we definitely want to know a good reason. <laughs> but I guess when we come back to this issue of cost, I think you really, I think you really found the gold with the old Socratic method of you know why, why keep talking. Is that what it took from you? was your motivation or whatever to try and make sense of what was happening to find meaning in it because pre pre yeah. jumping that hurdle of asking for help you were still having these experiences you're walking around in the world going 
well, that's scary. That's odd. That's weird. That's unusual. Mm. Mm. And you were seeking some sort of way of integrating. I think you used the word integrate. Yes. Into your existence. And then what you get is, oh, no, don't worry about that. It's just synapses. And, and uh, yes. have you heard of the word serotonin? You know, <laughs> and then from then on, you stop seeking meaning because you go, well, this is a problem. It's a, it, it's yeah, I need to be fixed now. And some of that is relief. You're like, oh, great. Yes. All that, all the challenging bits of that go away, but so do all the meaningful bits in your own in, inner being. Your identity stops looking for meaning and goes, ah, just a break, just a broken synapse in the brain that this drug will fix. And then we'll be right back with you. God, yes. I mean, one thing I talk, I've talked about is it's like you, you, you want understanding, but what you get is an explanation. Yeah. And those are two quite different yeah. things. Now, I'll own that I also wanted a fix. Yeah. <laughs> We all do when we go searching. Otherwise, why, why are we asking for help if not for, for, for a fix? But, but what, what comes with that is this idea that you are broken. That they're inextricable from one another in the current formulation. Yeah, and, and I think, again, we spoke about this in the, in the earlier podcast. You know, if that works for you, then Yahoo. Like, great. Yep. Yeah. But what do you do if it doesn't or it's not enough? Then you have to re-remember -re -rem that part of you that was like, I need integration here. I need meaning. I need some sort of way of, of and I won't say making sense because that puts us in the rational domain that science and medicine sit in. I like understanding, you know. Yep. And what's funny, like you take your eyes off the, the medical realm, artists have been doing this for millennia. We see it in every song, every picture, every piece of writing. It's all there, you know. It's just a different way of saying it. So, so when you say, yeah, it's not even about making sense of your big scary feelings. I, th I think you're right. Maybe it's making space. Yeah. Making space for your big scary feelings and, and the cost of asking for help through the, the, you know, the particularly narrow medical pathways we're given, the cost is there's no fucking space for how you're feeling. Mm. It's all about the fix. Mm. It's all about what are we going to do about it or how are we going to get you better. And I'm not saying that at an individual level. There are, you know, there are all sorts of people listening in different practitioner roles, and I bet you bring every ounce of, your, of nuance that you've learned through living with this stuff yourself yeah to those roles yeah. i'm not i'm not you know besmirching all the fantastic work being done by individuals i'm talking about the systemic yeah. approach i'm talking about the system we have to work in even now when i do work within the system i'm mindful that you know that's the space i'm in so it, it's going to be tough it's going to be hard for me to express myself and and also you know i mean you have this experience too you you just got to say it all the time we don't we don't have the solution guys like you you know you're doing this royal commission like great like go make it better definitely make it better i could my experience of hospitals and gps and care could definitely be improved on you still haven't got the solution mm. you're just a better option yes so that's exactly it one of the things i think happens is there's this gravitational pull towards 
having an answer. Mm. So particularly if you're a clinician, particularly if you're that person, buck stops here, that I've gone to and said, help. Yeah. There is this gravitational pull to have something to help with. And yet, uh, even if you're bit, <laughs> even if the thing you do, you do really well and you've seen it help other people, yeah. it's still not the answer. It's it's a tiny part of the answer. And, and if I'm lucky as someone seeking help, your tiny bit may be one of the 10 things that adds up to the answer, but I have to do the math myself. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, and if we were being really honest, when people say, help me, it's like, I can't. You can, I can't. <laughs> but yeah. then you've got to work with people's expectations, you know. Yeah. So here's the difference. Like, if you go to a mechanic and you say, you know, fix my car, and they go, well, I can't, but you can. You're like, no, I actually can't. <laughs> I actually don't have that skill set and I will make a bad job of this. But cars are like, what, 150 years old? They are not a natural, naturally occurring phenomena. We are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and hit, that's the difference. We've applied this really rational, logical, right-sided brain, analytical, whatever you want to call it. We've applied this to a human experience and it doesn't, it doesn't do it justice. Hmm. I think something you said in the last episode I wanted to bring up here again, which is you, you, you talked about how there's almost kind of two groups of people when we're talking about people asking mm. for help. There's those of us who within a year or two of asking for help find the thing that does pretty much make it mostly all better yep. and then move on. Yep. And then there's those of us who find something that helps a little bit move on with life, things get wobbly again. Mm. Find something that helps a little bit, move on with life, things get wobbly again. That second group, first of all, I, there's, no, there's no science on this, but there, there, are, there are some clues that this is a bigger group than we think. So one of the things I cite a lot is, is a study showing that one in two cases of anxiety and depression will last for multiple years, mm. even if you're doing all the right mm. things. So what does that tell us? It tells us it's not a just ask for help, get better situation. Mm. Those people, that group that I'm very much in, the, you know, whatever what you want to call us, the, <laughs> I call us sensitive cats, yeah. personally. <laughs> um, people who, for whatever reason, are often going to fail the DAS questionnaire. <laughs> Even when life's going to be okay. Yeah. We're going to get an F mark. Um, those of us, that group, do we need something different from the service system? So, so you, you know, as you, as you rightly point out, some will come and ask for help, get the thing, yeah. move on, be better. Great. But for, for those of, and, and for them, the just ask for help message makes sense, yeah. right? Beyond Blue works for those people. The just ask for help message is for them. Exactly. Purposely. That's, you know, marketing companies will talk about their demographic and it's not us. It's not us. But I, but I will say we still fit in that demographic the first time round. Yeah. And then we slowly but surely realize, oh, shit, nah, this isn't it. Um, yeah. Which can be a very dispiriting process unless you find other people like you. So this is this is my prescription is how do we have more 
examples because the thing is you can go through this system you can spend 10 years asking for help and never meet another person who's going through what you're going through mm. So that thing I mentioned, you know, the one in two cases of anxiety and depression will last for multiple years. No one fucking tells you that. Mm. So if that's you out there struggling for many years, despite doing all the right things, you think you are the screw up. Yeah. And they, and they tell you a story as well that you then have to swallow, which is even harder than the swallowing the help thing. So if you're told you're treatment resistant, you're like, oh, not only am I fucked, I'm fucked at being fucked. Exactly. And then where does that leave you? You know, so... That, that that costs twice and possibly twice as hard because yep. that will take your, your your hope, your faith, anything that you've got that, you know, some way life is livable. So I've been a mental health professional, mm-hmm. as have you, Gareth, for a number of years in various different roles. For the mental health professionals listening to this podcast, because there's a few, is there a way, my question is, is there a way of sitting in your role that doesn't take the roll itself too seriously and what i mean by that is the 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 little dance we're in when i come asking for help is i'm in so much pain and i'm desperate for you to fix me yeah and you know you can't fix me yeah (laughs) so how can that go in a way that is generative rather than frustrating for both of us How, how do we kind of find a version of that dance that is life-affirming rather than, um, oh, we'll try this then. Okay, how about this? Or, you know. Mm. You've got to find a way to show them that there's all these various pieces and your job is to do the bit that you can do whilst also validating and recognising that there's lots of other bits. Mm. I think the best clinicians, support workers, whatever, do do that. They go, this is my piece. But in a very tight clinical role, even if your job is a nurse triage, which is what my partner is, you can triage someone clinically whilst also sharing that this is one piece of a puzzle that they're assembling. And you can sort of manage expectations. Like, we don't finish this triage and then your problems are solved. You know, Anona talks beautifully about, you know, arriving in an inpatient world going, great, I'm at the place. Like, you're fucking not. <laughs> you're definitely not at the place you thought you were going to. Mm. So I think it is, it's, when you get in a role, you see the world through your role. And I think the best clinicians see the world through the person they're serving's situation. Mm. And it brings a bit of humility. It's a bit mm. like, you know, even outside of mental health, you know, when I've been for heart health issues, the guy's like, sure, we can crunch your blood pressure down. But what you're looking at is a lifestyle change. That's where the guts of this is gonna 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 you know resolve. So I think some of it is is seeing it through your person's eyes and not through the role that you happen to find yourself in. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I do think that naming this um kind of two different paths that we're talking about the 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 simple story just asked for help got help got better within two years and then those of us who are on more of a lifelong journey i'd like to see more literacy around that in the mental health profession i'd like there to be more of an understanding that those are two very different paths just because so because and you said this gareth if you (laughs) 
if you've tried all the all the supposed fixes, like you tried CBT, right? Yeah. And it didn't really do the job. Yeah. Then you go through the same thing again. You go back and they offer you that same thing. Yeah. And it's offered in this way that it's like, you know, here's the process. Follow the steps. You'll you'll get better. And you yeah. don't. Oh, that's frustrating. And it and it, it it is then that's where there needs to be space. There needs to be room for like you said, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> yeah, and I and I don't think it's a quantitative thing. I think it's qualitative because you followed out to the sort of natural conclusion and where you end up is like is this was the message I got, you know, hi Gareth, you have a lifelong condition. You will always be on medication. You may well have repeat admissions to hospital in states of mania, and you'll spend most of the winter suicidal. Yep. Probably lower your expectations of what you could achieve in your life and don't have kids. That was roughly the yes. guts of it. So we don't want to go there. No. And in my little spiel that we were going to have put on a pillow, it's like, welcome. Things look tough for you right now. We have no idea why. <laughs> we have some options. And then the final piece of that little thing is if and when you want to find some meaning of all of this, mm. we're ready for that too. And that's the piece that never gets never gets named in the system. Even the like good clinicians will say, hey, this might be spiritual for you, or this might be, you know, some sort of you know, existential crisis, but they can't do anything with it. Mm. And this is the beauty of, you know, things like the big feels, like the alternatives to suicide. It's like when you, if and when you want to find meaning, then we're ready. We have things for you. We have ways through this. And I think that applies even to the ones who get their fix. Yes. Because I know people who kind of do it, get fixed, and then 10 years later, they're like, what the fuck was that actually? <laughs> you know? So I, I will, I'm going to push back slightly on one thing there, which is that, I think I think clinicians and, and people in, in those more kind of healthcare roles, I think they can help with the meaning bit. Ooh. It's not it's not in their job description. But I've certainly like I have one I've had one therapist who you know, I gave up on therapy um until uh because I you know, I did uh, CBT and I had a very lovely uh strength based therapist who who certainly helped me feel better, but it didn't fucking change anything. Um, and mm. gave up on therapy for a decade. And the reason I went back to it was um, for relationship counseling, for couples counseling. That turned out to be a really great gateway yeah. back into, into therapy. But the, but the guy that I found this, you know, next time around was um, so much better suited for me in terms of just his approach like he's much more in the, what i would say the kind of humanistic psychology yeah. vein which happens to be what i vibe with um in fact i <laughs> what the way i knew is the right person right at the start was i i had to give him my mental health gp mental health plan that said i was severely depressed and i had to give him that so i'd get my subsidy but i i gave it to him with a spiel <laughs> which was basically here's why i think this is not a useful frame for my current experiences yeah so i do want help but i don't want help through the frame of well there's something wrong with you we've got to fix and i told him my little spiel about the mental health plan and he said he just looked at me and he said 
that's the most thorough deconstruction of the concept of depression I've ever heard. And I was like, I'm in the right place. Anyway, so that that practitioner and that particular setting, and then you know, there's maybe factors outside both of our control that made this was possible made this possible, but that was a space for some more philosophical discussion. Like so I'll push back on your push. Go on. You arrived able to deconstruct depression. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd done a lot of legwork in that 10 years. So, mm. you know, you, you set the agenda. You arrived with like, here's what's not going to happen here. Yeah. So you were in power. Yeah. That's a very rare situation, particularly in the early years. It took you a lot of anguish and a lot of journeying. I'd say the second pushback is more systemic. Mm. Like you get your 10 sessions from having to cross this boundary of, of, of the, the hidden cost of asking for help. And it does cost you every time. Absolutely. Even as a seasoned pro. I just stopped doing it. I, this year I haven't even gone to get my GP mental health plan because I'm like, fuck it, I don't want to do that again. It always makes me feel like shit. Here's the point. He's not in the mainstream public health system. Yes. So he's not the option. You know, mm. you can, for whatever reason, you're in a position where you go, do you know what? I'm not going to jump that hurdle, mm. but I'm going to carry on with therapy. Yeah. That's not the vast majority of people who, who do what we do longer term, like get beyond one or two years and are still struggling. Yeah. That is not an option. So he's not mainstream. He's not traditional services. I'd even argue 10 sessions is reasonably tokenistic and bullshit. If you need him every week for a year, why not? Mm. If it's working, we spend, you know, whatever we spend on medication, we spend whatever we spend on hospital wards, all the infrastructure, all the research, everything that goes with it, billions. We know it's billions. Yeah. I think there's a place to make that more mainstream, but it's not there now. We called the last episode out to have more honest conversations about medication. This whole experiment could be called how to be more honest in mental health. <laughs> That's what we're really trying to get to. <laughs> totally. Mm. yeah and that, and that for me always comes back to the kind of for me my vision for all all helping roles is is greater transparency where you can say like i say i've said before you know often when we talk about risk i think we mean worry i can say i'm worried about you not you're a risk yeah i can say i'm having doubts that i'm that i'm being very helpful right now rather than um you know I don't know what else, what, what, you know, hold, just, hold, just, just bottling just, it up and, and, and wondering, you know. I've had, you know, my therapist, interestingly enough, who, the one I mentioned, who, who I just think is fantastic at what he does, um, he got in touch with me and my partner after a few sessions to be like, mm. am, I, am I helping? <laughs> and if so, <laughs> do you mind telling me how? Because I'm curious. So we need more of that. Yeah. We need more... Uh, practitioners not only willing to have more humility, but as you're alluding to, we need a system that actually allows them to have that honesty and humility, not to always have to be seen to have the answer, which is exactly what I said to the Royal Commission into mental health here in Victoria and what we will keep banging on about to anyone who will listen. <laughs> um... Hey, I think we'll leave this one here. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, Gareth Edwards. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you all, or you'll hear us all next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool.